So then, Christmas has been and gone. That time where we all got to take some much needed rest, get together with our family and loved ones to celebrate the year just gone, before getting incredibly sick of them and reflecting on how quickly time marches on in spite of our petty accomplishments, and how life is but a swift joke at our expense. Or was that just me? I'm Andy Corrigan, this is the Switch Focus Podcast, and welcome to our Best of 2018 special. In this episode, we talk about our Switch highlights of 2018, slotting them into appropriate pigeonholes for your entertainment. Uh, sadly, Ginny's missing for this episode. She is on some much-needed extended leave, so we've brought in our composer, Craig, to uh, fill in the gaps there. So yeah, let's just get right into it. <laughs> Best game I missed last year. Hello, this is Craig, and I write music under the name Windmills at Dawn. This is probably the first time you've heard my voice, but if you've been listening along to the show, I'm the one who made the chiptune intervals for the podcast, and sometimes I change up the intro song for special occasions. So the best game that I missed last year was I Am Setsuna. Now, I've mostly fallen out with JRPGs, but every so often I get the urge to head back, and this time I was really glad that I did. So this game establishes a very cheery tone from the start, as you are tasked with escorting a young girl on a pilgrimage to end her own life. It's somewhat of a throwback gameplay-wise, and if you look at the seams holding everything together, it was quite clearly made on a budget. But, thanks to some very creative and thoughtful considerations, it works as a really condensed and consistent adventure that doesn't outstay its welcome. For example, the music is almost entirely performed on piano. Now you could easily see this as a cost-cutting measure, which it is, but it creates a very intimate and gloomy and very delicate soundtrack, which also reflects the snowy locales that you visit. Overall, it's a really wonderfully focused RPG with some interesting mechanics and a beautiful soundtrack. Check it out. Hey there, Andy here. So my pick for this one was a bit of a surprise even to me. I've never been much into cooking or time management games, and although I enjoy them I rarely put much time into match 3 style puzzle games unless it's just in 10 minute spells. Uh, So despite Andrew and Ginny both yelling at me for weeks about Battle Chef Brigade, at the time of release it was simply a straight up hard pass from me. What changed my mind however was my wife, so she used to be a big fan of the Iron Chef TV show, and like match 3 games in general, so she had an interest in Battle Chef Brigade the second I told her about it. Uh, so I ended up buying it for her as a gift, I got her some eShop credit. Once she got it, I watched her play a little and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I picked it up the week after, it was on sale which was really handy. And what a glorious week that followed as I delved into the Battle Chef Brigade contest as Rookie Chef Mina. So what I discovered was there were three key pillars to this game. There's the story, which is just charming with fantastic characters, interesting twists and turns, and it's all portrayed in this really gorgeous watercolour art style. The second pillar is the match three cooking system, which focuses on bolstering flavours but within the confines of judges' preferences and ingredient choices. And then finally, there's the combat gameplay, uh, where you need to actually kill and collect the ingredients while you're in the cooking competition. And the biggest surprise for me was because of the animation style, I felt that this part of the game would be really awkward and stilted and would be the weakest element, but in in reality it was really, really slick, responsive, and just really fun, especially when tied in with the challenge of tight time limits, the inventory space, and the necessity to get the best ingredients. It's a fantastic game, and one that I think everyone should try, even if those individual elements 
don't sound like something that would usually be your thing. I tried it, and I proved myself wrong, and in the best way too. Hello listeners, this is Andrew, and for my best game I missed last year, I have chosen The End Is Nigh. This is a side-scrolling platformer from Edmund McMillan, the creator of Super Meat Boy, and I was just really impressed with this game and kind of disappointed in myself because I saw this game on the eShop when it first came out, and I didn't think it was going to be any good. It looked like Super Meat Boy with black and white graphics, basically, but it is so much more than that where Super Meat Boy is just this collection of abstract levels all broken up into different screens that really don't have anything to do with each other. The End is Nigh is a cohesive world. It is an open-ended world. It's not really a sandbox that you explore, but it is an open world where you can go backwards and forwards to discover things if you choose to, and there are a few branching paths. And it has those precision jumping mechanics that you expect from a game like Super Meat Boy. It's very much in the spirit of Super Meat Boy, of course, with its development pedigree. That makes perfect sense, but I just found it a lot more engaging, and I loved it from beginning to end. I think it's one of the better platformers on the platform. But there's a better one, which we'll be talking about later. Best last-gen port. As someone who skipped over the Wii U, I'm more than happy for Nintendo to keep porting over all the best games from that system, and this year I was thrilled to pick up Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. From start to finish, it's an incredibly inventive game with a difficulty that sometimes errs on the frustrating side, but it's so vibrant and fun that you can easily forgive it. But as I finished it, it fell a little on the short side and I was left wanting a little more. I looked at the Kong letters and figured, Well, I'm never going to get all of them, so what's the point? But, well, I only have a few more to get in the first world, so I'll unlock that level, and then, mm, that'll be it. But then I went on to the second world, and I only had a few more Kong letters there, and then the third world. And by that point, some cost fallacy aside, I was halfway done getting them all, so I might as well keep going. Now, when you're playing the really difficult levels uh, to get the Kong letters, it really changes how you approach things. Your goal isn't just to finish the level anymore, so you don't really get frustrated that you can't progress. Your goal is that level itself, and you could become quite content just to occupy the space until you've mastered it. It becomes oddly chilled out. So in the end, I managed to get all those Kong letters, and completed all the mega tough extra levels too. And now after that, I unlocked hard mode, but by that point, I was done. I was quite satisfied with the experience. But the real reward for all your hard efforts is that you can now play the game with the best Kong. Of course, Dixie Kong. So my pick for this one is the Bayonetta collection. So while the Switch and the Wii U aren't exactly light years apart in terms of power, and therefore the visual differences between Bayonetta's last gen outing and its current gen collection are pretty negligible, both Bayonetta 1 and 2 are so good that I can't think of many of the Switch's last-gen ports that I enjoyed revisiting half as much as this this year, though Dark Souls has run it pretty close. Bayonetta herself is a fascinating, light-hearted character that is a great example of a hypersexualized female lead, and one that's done well, uh, and I really enjoy the madcap twists and turns of both her adventures as they, they start 
big with massive set pieces and then continue to find ways to top these things with every passing chapter. Uh, the combat is absolutely king, or queen I should say, as it's just a blast to play. It straddles the challenge and progression line incredibly well, giving novices just enough to get them through um, with style, but it has oodles of complexity for those that want to get elbow deep in combat and to get the highest points in the scoring system. Honestly, I just have an absolute blast whenever I pick Bayonetta up, and I'm just smiling thinking about it now. So uh, yeah, bring on Bayonetta 3. For my best last-gen port, I chose something which maybe you can quibble with me that it's not exactly last-gen, but I'm going to call the Wii U last-gen. For my selection, I chose Hyrule Warriors Definitive Edition. You know, if you've been listening to the podcast all year, I was incredibly hype about this game, and I was not wrong to be hype about this game. I bought it and I loved it. As I knew I would, because I've had this on Wii U, I had it on 3DS, and I loved it there as well. And this takes all of the content from the 3DS version of the game, which is a ridiculous amount of content, and gives it uh, an HD presentation like it had in the Wii U version. So it's the best of both worlds, and it's just a great game. It is a Musou game, it is a Dynasty Warriors spinoff, and you've probably heard bad things about Dynasty Warriors. I encourage you not to give too much credence to the people who call Hyrule Warriors repetitive, because I think it's a complete misreading of the game. It's looking at it on the micro level and not on the macro level, which is where the game design of Hyrule Warriors really exists at. As far as bang for your buck on the Switch... Yeah, it's a a pretty big buck it costs you. This is a full-priced game, and it's probably going to remain full-priced because it is a Nintendo game and it is a Zelda game. It still offers an astonishing amount of things to do without resorting to procedural generation. I love it. I highly recommend it. It is definitely my best last-gen port. Best Indie Brevity is something that can really flourish in the indie space that has a real tough time justifying itself in the AAA market. If you have a huge budget and are charging $60, a 2 hour game is a hard sell. But the indie market gives creators space to sell a short experience which really leans into a single idea and explores it, but then wraps things up before it outstays its welcome. The best example of this ethos, and the best indie game this year for my money, was Minute. The premise is simple. Every 60 seconds, you die. Some things persist in the world, and some of your inventory also persists, but you don't have long before you peg it. It's kind of like Majora's Mask on Fast Forward. The whole runtime of the game is just a handful of hours, but in that short time you're treated to a remarkably clever experience with sharp writing and a wonderfully light-hearted atmosphere. It's not that much on the eShop, so I highly recommend you pick it up and spend the afternoon dying. So this one was a really tough category for me, as I have uh, two indies that I love equally for very different reasons, and I've agonised and switched them around multiple times right up to stepping up to the microphone. And it's probably going to change again before I send the audio over to whoever's editing this episode. Uh, Beating out Celeste by a very, very narrow margin is Into the Breach. I love turn-based strategy games, and Into the Breach takes that genre formula that I love and condenses it beautifully into deftly balanced, bite-sized chunks that are made all the more meaningful with the permadeath. It's a game that constantly puts you in these incredibly difficult, tense situations, 
where you need to agonize over every move, trying to operate a couple of steps ahead of the enemy insect forces, and try and plot how their moves will impact you and your resources. Often the only answer is to weigh up what's most important in that exact moment and willingly take a sacrifice, whether that's one of the, your three pilots, important resources or, or civilians. And when you get a victory against all the odds, there are a few games more satisfying. I haven't actually beaten it yet, I've fallen agonisingly short a couple of times, but I obsessed over this game for a solid three weeks and I keep going back in spells. It's really special. For my best indie, I've chosen Celeste. How could I choose anything else? This was a super early release for 2018. I think it was one of the first truly new games I picked up, and I sat down just to play it for a little while, and I ended up playing the whole thing because it was just so much fun. This is a side-scrolling platformer, and it is one of those where it kills you left and right and center if you don't get your jumps just absolutely perfect but it has the mechanics to back that up every time you die in this game it is your fault the controls are just absolutely pixel perfect if you press a direction it happens if you press jump it happens i never had a problem with that but what really elevates Celeste is the story it tells and the themes it follows through. Most of the other platformers that you play like this, you know, your Super Meat Boys or even The End is Nigh, they are pretty shallow from a thematic standpoint. But Celeste really has it as you follow this young woman who climbs up the mountain Celeste in order to prove something to herself and along the way she makes friends and she makes enemies and she overcomes ancient evil curses and it's just a really well told story that really takes advantage of the medium that it's in to tell it and it's a really good platformer on top of it. It is without hesitation my best indie game of 2018. Best Multiplayer From the moment it was announced, I could have told you that my favourite multiplayer experience of the year was going to be Smash, and it hasn't disappointed me. There's certainly an initial, what the hell is going on barrier, but once you can get past that and embrace the chaos, it's fantastic. The thing I like about Smash over more traditional fighters is the simple control scheme. I barely have the time or skill to learn the button inputs of one character, so I always end up just butting mashing. But with Smash, it's simple. So regardless of which character I use, I never struggle with being able to do a move, just about the right time to use it. The best moments in Smash are those tense moments when someone has a massive percentage and at any moment one last hit could be their end, but they're just holding on there managing to keep it together. Sometimes they look into an item and to victory, which I could see as being frustrating for some, but when I'm playing Smash multiplayer, I never really want to care about the final scores. I'll just choose a random character and enjoy the show. So, best multiplayer, eh? It's a well-known fact that I'm not a huge fan of online gaming. Hell, my pick for this one was nearly Dark Souls, which is a very single-player game, but with some, like, PvE or PvP elements where, with simple messaging, you can make the best out of a really rubbish situation as a community. But in terms of traditional multiplayer games, there are a few exceptions to my no-online rule. I've loved playing Splatoon 2 and Fortnite on Switch, in the last year and beyond because I don't really need to communicate with people while playing them. 
the most regular exception to my no online rule is fighting games because I'm a huge fan and despite being really bad at them in my childhood I still enjoy the challenge of playing against others and trying to improve and just overcoming my ceiling which admittedly isn't very high. So step forward Super Smash Bros. Ultimate as my pick for best multiplayer. With Smash 4 on Wii U, as as we discussed recently in the last episode, that was my first experience with Smash, and I only ever played it 1v1 with no items, and it was that mode that convinced me of Smash as a legitimate competitive fighting game. Here, while that 1v1 mode is still my preference, the changes to the matchmaking mean that there are times where I'm forced to step outside of my comfort zone in in chaotic four-player games with different rule sets and a myriad of items and to be honest I'm really enjoying the variety. When it comes to my interests in gaming habits I'm a very phasey person and once something grabs me I'll want to do and play all the things of a similar nature and competitive smash has definitely got me back on the fighting game bandwagon. I absolutely adore it. Andrew again for my best multiplayer choice. There are any number of games I could have chosen for this because 2018 was the year that Nintendo Switch Online launched, and it's also the year that the free-to-play games arrived on the platform. So we've got games like Fortnite, which I spent most of the summer playing. Paladins came out over the summer as well. Paladins is an excellent shooter on the level of Overwatch. And then you also have your party games like Super Mario Party came out. Not a fan personally, but Andy I know is really into it. And Super Smash Brothers, of course. But for me, the best multiplayer, I was really tempted to go with Fortnite because I did spend so much time over the summer playing it. But I did stop playing it because I got tired of how all there was to do in it was the competitive aspect to it, and especially since what drew me into Fortnite was its Battle Pass offerings and exploring the map and finding all these things the Battle Pass adds to it. That's what I was into much more than the, you know, shooting other players in the head. So when every match inevitably got to the point where it was just me trying to survive against the other people who were still there, I was pretty disenchanted with it. So thank goodness in November Warframe came out because Warframe has it all. It is a third-person shooter. It's free to play. It has competitive shooting if that's what you're into. But more importantly, it also has a lot of cooperative options and cooperative against the computer as well, you know, PvE gameplay. If you are really looking for a multiplayer game on the Switch that just doesn't ask anything of you up to and including not even asking you to spend any money on it, and if you want to do some PvP, Warframe has that for you. If you want to do some cooperative stuff against the computer, Warframe has that for you. Or if you just want to play by yourself, Warframe has that for you. That's why I chose it for my multiplayer game of the year, because it gives you all of the options that Fortnite and Paladins and Arena of Valor, which, you know, their their competitive shooterness might be better than what Warframe has, but Warframe has the options. So that's why I've chosen it. Warframe is my best multiplayer game of 2018. Best writing. 
The best writing for me this year was from Subsurface Circular. In the game, you talk to various robots on the subway as you investigate the recent disappearance of a different robot. The story takes some twists and turns, and while the exploration of robot rights and humanity is hardly a new field, it was realised so well that what it lacks in originality, it makes up for in its execution. You could feel the different characters coming through each robot, and the exposition was handled in a nice and not too heavy-handed way. The semi-sequel quietly went on the eShop earlier in December, so I'll absolutely be picking that one up too. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you probably know that despite enjoying challenging games, I'm a bit hit and miss on the Super Meat Boy style of platformer. And what I'd expected, much like I did with Battleship Brigade last year, is that I'd skip Celeste entirely on that basis. When it came out though, people weren't talking about the challenge, but they were talking about its story and heavy themes instead, which is ultimately what got my attention. What the Celeste conversation hadn't prepared me for, however, was just how well Madeline, the main character, and her climbing story and its platforming challenges tied into the themes of depression and anxiety, which are both things I have a storied history with and things I've touched upon a couple of times in my games writing. Without spoiling the finer details, because this is the story is a huge part of the game, the struggle, the internal arguments, the setbacks, the acceptance, the family misunderstandings, and just the sense of reward from overcoming a challenge to feel better about yourself, all that is masterfully represented here. And it comes with a lovely message, which is that you may think that you can't overcome what's in front of you, but that's why you must. I find that really beautiful. And it's basically just that weaving of gameplay and messaging that makes it my best shout for writing this year. Andrew here for the best writing category. You've all just heard me gush at length about how much I loved the story and the characters and the themes in Celeste, so it should come as no surprise to you that for the best writing category, I have not chosen Celeste. Actually, the best written game of 2018, as far as I'm concerned, is Darkest Dungeon. Now, don't get me wrong, as I said, Celeste is an incredibly well-written and well-considered game, but Celeste does not have the ancestor, who is the narrator of Darkest Dungeon, and he is rightly iconic. It is impossible to play this game and not have his voice stuck in your head and have all of the ridiculously flowery, verbose things he says to describe all the actions in the game just follow you everywhere you go. The Ancestor in Darkest Dungeon is an iconically written character on the level of GLaDOS from Portal. For that reason alone, I give Darkest Dungeon best writing. Best Soundtrack For me, the best soundtrack this year goes to Owlboy. It's a gorgeous game to look at with some lush pixel art, but the developers have foregone the usual chip tunes that you often expect for a more orchestral soundtrack. The music has some beautifully grand soaring moments of freedom, undercut quietly with delicate self-doubt, which supports the story and characters of the game brilliantly. If you're a fan of the music in Mario Galaxy or Ghibli movies, you should absolutely check this out. But really, this is one of those soundtracks that while it can stand on its own, as an amazing body of work, I would really advise you to play through Alboy first, so the first time you experience it, it's with the beautiful art with the themes of the game. So this category was no contest for me really, 
Uh, I adored this soundtrack when I played the full game on PS4, and I loved it again in this Chibavide Pocket Edition. The score I'm talking about, of course, is that of Final Fantasy XV Pocket Edition. The soundtrack itself is by prolific games composer Yoko Shimomura, and is simply a perfect complement to the thematic setup of Final Fantasy XV's admittedly uneven but super charming plot, and it nails all the emotional highs and lows that you experience as these four wonderful boys bond over the course of the adventure. The entire soundtrack is really great, but the real gem, my favourite, is Apocalypsis Noctus. It's a proper energetic number used in key boss fights and across the end credits, and it still sits on my playlist to this day. Andrew here for Best Soundtrack. There have been some real standout soundtracks this year. I think the soundtrack in Octopath Traveler has kind of been overlooked in the discussions about the game's narrative shortcomings and its graphical design. And then there's Hyrule Warriors that captures a complete series of beloved songs and reimagines them in very dark and warlike tones. But really the best soundtrack for me, there's really one game this year that I could really possibly give it to you, and that's to Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Ever since Brawl on the Wii, Smash Bros. has been putting together a really impressive collection of songs to complement each of its maps, drawing together both popular music and also more obscure songs from across all of the series that appear in Smash Brothers and are represented therein. And Super Smash Brothers Ultimate is just the most absurd version of that yet. I think at the start of the game, when you haven't even unlocked anything, there's over 70 hours of music to listen to. And it's just an astonishing collection of music. It's a treasure trove. It's a museum. There's no other game this year which could possibly earn best soundtrack more than what is literally a museum of video game music. Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Best Sound Design For the best sound design, I'm going to have to go back to Subsurface Circular. For a game that could be pared down to mostly text, the sound does a great job of selling the atmosphere and sense of place. There are a few small musical interludes, and some annoying headphone noise pollution, from Dan Lassac, and they were nice little bookmarks too. I really like the way the HD rumble has been integrated, so when the sound of other trains passing by comes along, you get a nice little bit of feedback too. The whole soundscape made it really easy to believe that you're actually on an underground system, and because the switch is portable, maybe you're as you play it. Okay, best sound design. Stay with me here because this is a bit of a weird one. Uh, So while I was always super hyped about Pokemon Let's Go and pre-ordered the Pokeball Plus bundle, I'm generally very iffy on motion controls and I didn't know how I'd get on with Let's Go's whole docked and motion only thing. Even if I liked it, I figured the novelty would wear off pretty quickly and I'd just end up playing handheld a lot. And so while I did switch to handheld every so often, docked was definitely my preferred way to play, and the Pokeball Plus was a large part of that, as the feedback it provides is terrific. When you throw the Pokeball, quote-unquote, and it hits the creature that you want to catch, not only does the Pokeball Plus 
have HD rumble and vibrates to signal the initial hit, the subsequent three-tier catch pattern, and the click of the catch. It also makes noises of that entire process pulled right from the core games. And more impressively, it also makes the noise of the creature when caught, and uses this in a really cool way when, if you choose to take a Pokemon out with the ball for a stroll, they'll occasionally call out to you and you can interact by pressing the button. While this isn't really sound design that's within a game, and seems like it's a really small gimmicky thing, which, you know, okay, I guess it kind of is, it did add a really enjoyable extra sensory dimension to my quest to conquer the Kanto region again. And that's why it's my pick for best sound design. Andrew here with best sound design, which was a really tough category for me to call because this is not something that's really my forte. But ultimately, I came around to choose Darkest Dungeon for best sound design for the same reason I chose it for best writing, because not only is the ancestor an incredibly well-written character, it's also an incredibly well-performed character. But not just the ancestor, who is the only voice that you ever hear in the game, and it's the only voice you need to hear in the game, I might add, but the way the rest of the game uses a really simple sound set to communicate what's happening on the screen. You know, you use an attack, and you see your highwayman using his dagger attack, it uses a sound effect that goes with it, and the sound effect absolutely matches up, and you can close your eyes, and you can listen to it, and you can still understand what is happening. And then there's also things like the screaming of the madmen when they're using their babbling attack against you, or the sound effect that accompanies a character becoming afflicted. It's not a flashy or a showy form of sound design, but it's an extremely effective one, and it's one that stuck with me. It's one where even now I can close my eyes and I can think about what's happening in Darkest Dungeon in the version of it that plays in my head, and those sound effects are there. They're resonant. And that's why I've chosen Darkest Dungeon for best sound design, as unlikely a choice as it may seem. Favorite Announcement I'm a little bit of a strange one, in that I always used to love playing as the Ice Climbers in Smash Brothers, so a little bummed out that they didn't make it into Smash Brothers for 3DS. Now before E3 there's a lot of speculation about who would be returning for Smash on Switch, and the E3 trailer was just a masterclass. So they started off showing you the obvious characters that everybody knew was returning, and then they'd start to slowly bring in those characters that people didn't really care about returning that much, except me, like the Ice Climbers. But it was nice to know that they were coming back, and it was a nice statement saying, hey look, there's lots of characters here. And then they took the time to pause and focus on a character that absolutely nobody thought would return, Snake. After giving just a moment to let that sink in, a huge everyone is here comes up. It was a wonderful reveal and my absolute favourite announcement of the Switch that year. Okay, for favourite announcement, it was either going to be one of the big Smash reveals, either that fake out trailer with the uh, squids from Splatoon 2 or the everyone is here line from E3 however I'm going to have to roll with the corporate awkwardness found in the announcement of a game I've not even had a chance to play yet which is Diablo 3 Eternal Collection in this amazing video reveal you have 
Reggie of Nintendo busy working away in his office before he gets interrupted by a video call from Blizzard CEO Mike Morhaime. Mike sent him a Switch with Diablo 3 preloaded on it, and the whole thing is just so hammy and cringy that I can't help but love it. In the same way that shows like The Office are just cringy but funny, and it's that that makes it my favourite announcement of the year. More corporate awkwardness in announcement trailers, please. Andrew with my favorite announcement, and let's flash all the way back to the last March Direct, which had a strange little capper at the end, which had the Inkling girl and the Inkling boy having a little Splatoon duel in a white void. It was actually a recreation of the very first trailer for Splatoon, so, you know, if you have that information in mind... Maybe you're thinking, oh, they're going to port the first Splatoon to Switch. That's an odd choice. But then it turns dark, and the white void becomes a black void, and we zoom in on the Inkling girl's eye, and we see this ring of fire, and would you know it, it's the Smash Brothers logo, and then we see in silhouette... We see Mario, and we see Link, and we see a lot of other characters just standing all in a line, just summoning you to join them in this hell void to fight to the death. (laughs) It was the strangest introduction to Smash Brothers possible because it's just not the tone of Smash Brothers, even now that Smash Brothers has actually come out it's not the tone that the game really had at all it was a very strange introduction to the game but i loved it and the people watching it loved it there was a live feed of the nintendo direct playing at nintendo world in new york and one image that's really stuck with me all year was one of the guys there who was watching the direct had to take a moment he had to lay down and just start breathing because it was pretty apparent that he was not breathing he just had to lay down and close his eyes and just let the moment pass so he could live again it was absolutely the way to introduce a game especially a game that we knew was coming but we really didn't have any information on it was the perfect way to say yes this is happening and then to cap it all off coming 2018 just brilliant my favorite announcement super smash brothers ultimate reveal from the march 2018 direct favorite moment my favorite moment this year is in pokemon let's go poking pikachu in the nose and making him sneeze i won't rest until this is a standard feature in every game Okay, my favourite moment is a really hard one to explain because I hate giving away spoilers. Uh, but I'm, you know what, I'm going to have to slap a spoiler warning on this one, so if you don't want to hear what it is, just skip ahead a minute. Uh, my favourite moment comes from Celeste. Part of the great writing, which I've already spoke about, is about themes of depression and anxiety and about how a character overcomes that. Now in Celeste, there is a bad guy, and it's a mirror version of the main character, Madeline. She's She's been dubbed Madeline in, in uh, cameos in other games. There's a fighter that she's in. After several run-ins and fights and running away from, from Madeline, Madeline realizes that Madeline represents the part of herself that she doesn't like, and running away and fighting it 
is ultimately pointless and that she needs to accept her and work together with her to overcome the hump. And this is portrayed in this really beautiful scene where after a setback of of falling back several layers back down the mountain, they work together in this really euphoric way and just sort out their problems. And that's my pick for favorite moment. Andrew, with my favorite moment, I actually kind of stepped on this, so I'm just going to just go through it. My favorite moment was the guy who needed to lay down at Nintendo World New York after the Smash Brothers reveal. I hope he's okay, and I hope he loves Smash Brothers as much as he loved that trailer. Biggest surprise. I think the biggest surprise this year is Nintendo's eagerness to murder all of their characters. As the trailers for Smash Bros. Ultimate started coming out, people started to notice a slightly peculiar trend of beloved Nintendo stars meeting their untimely doom. Mario being skewered through the heart by Ridley, Luigi having his soul ripped from his limp, lifeless husk of a body. Who was going to be next? It turns out, everyone. Pikachu? Dead. Sonic? Dead. Star Fox? Dead. I would never have guessed that the story in Smash Bros would essentially start the same way as the story in Mortal Kombat 9. Everyone is here! And they're all dead. Okay, so my biggest surprise has been Smash Ultimate's World of Light mode. When I made a prediction of a Worlds Collide-style adventure mode for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate in a previous episode, I hadn't thought it would be delivered quite as brilliantly as its World of Light adventure mode, which is, to be frank, just utterly delightful. There's no in-depth story, but the gameplay loop of bite-sized and varied... Uh, fight-to-fight modifiers is really fun to go through and it's instilled in me a one-more-go mentality like never before to the point where I'm more focused on map progression and spirit unlocks than I am on unlocking the actual roster which is what I really want to happen because I want Cloud at the time of recording I still haven't got him but I just cannot stop playing this mode. Not only has it surprised me about how good it's turned out, but it surprised me about just how much I personally have taken to it, especially considering that I only really bought into Smash to play competitive online multiplayer. I thought a mode like this with all those modifiers would end up hurting my online improvement, yet I found that it's actually teaching me to think more about the types of game plans I'll face, and is improving me in areas that I just decided that I was forever naturally bad at. So yeah, World of Light is worth the emission fee alone. Get right on it. For my biggest surprise, I grappled a long time with this choice. Uh, Right up until the end, I had it down to a choice between one of two options. And one of those options that I just got stuck on for so long was the Octo expansion for Splatoon 2, because I don't think anybody expected a DLC pack for Splatoon 2 to be not only introducing the Octolings as a playable race, but also to have a more interesting and robust single-player mode, and a longer single-player mode, than the actual single-player mode that came packed in with Splatoon 2. It has better, more interesting levels, and it has a more satisfying final boss. It was great, but it's not my choice for biggest surprise. My choice for biggest surprise is Hollow Knight, which is an indie game which is very often on sale for less than $10. It's a side-scroller, platformer, action-adventure, horror game, kind of in the vein of uh, a Castlevania, but with a lot of Dark Souls thrown in there. 
and it's very well designed, it's very well animated, but the most surprising thing is how it just keeps going and going and going. This game is astonishingly huge, much more than I would have expected for something that I bought for $15, and it's still getting bigger. There's been more free DLC released for it since I finished playing it over the summer, and I still have endings to get for it that I haven't gotten either, and I've played it for like 20 hours. I didn't know what to expect going into Hollow Knight. I didn't know if it would be a game that I would like or be largely indifferent towards, but it's very rare that a game takes me aback. Hollow Knight took me aback. It was a surprise to sit down and play this and see how detailed it was from an apparently inauspicious package. I know one thing I blunder into a lot is looking at something that only costs a certain amount of money and having a certain level of expectations about it. I know I shouldn't do that, I know it's unfair, but it's still an expectation I have. So I look at a game like Hollow Knight and what it costs, and I think about everything that's in it and how much work and effort goes into making things like that, and I find myself just asking, how is this game only $15? Hollow Knight is absolutely the biggest surprise of the year. Best Visual Design This year was the year that I finally got round to playing Orkami, and there have been essays written about how gorgeous this game looks, and it still looks fabulous. Clearly, the highlight is when you make those large trees bloom, which causes a tidal wave of colour and life in the area. As a game so full of little details, such as the grass blooming as your character runs, it's just a joy to behold. Okay, best visual design. This is a simple pick for me. There was only ever one winner, and that was Octopath Traveler. It was easily the most visually distinct game out of anything I played in 2018. It borrows heavily from some of Square's iconic 2D Final Fantasy games in, in pretty much every way, from 2D pixel art sprites and character art to its top-down viewpoint, but it applies those things to this really neat 3D diorama-styled world in a way that just makes everything pop really, really beautifully. Add in modernised effects like water or particle effects in battle, and it's a game of really stunning contrasts between old and new, and that's a feeling that's ever-present in Octopath's every element, be that visually, me mechanically, or otherwise. It's a great game too, by the way. I'm surprised I haven't talked about it more in this, this list, because despite some of my disappointments with how the eight stories wove together, mechanically and aesthetically, it's a really great game. I highly recommend it. Andrew here for Best Visual Design. Octopath Traveler is the obvious choice for this category this year, but I didn't want to go with the obvious choice. I knew immediately after I latched onto it as the very first thing I thought of, I should think about this some more, because there must be something else out there that I'm not considering. And there was. Back in June, there was a humble little game that just came and went, and people didn't seem to pay much attention to it, mostly because it was a mostly unremarkable entry in the tower defense genre, but that game is Pixel Junk Monsters 2, and it does have the advantage of being just absolutely gorgeous. 
Last year, I chose Thimbleweed Park for best visual design, which might seem like an odd choice, but I actually chose it because I thought that it absolutely nailed what it was trying to be, and what it was trying to be was a recreation of the 90s era scum engine adventure games. It was indistinguishable from those games apart from being in high definition. Pixel Junk Monsters 2 is the same case, where it just absolutely nails what it's trying to be, and that is just a recreation of stop-motion animation happening in these little dioramas. This game screenshots better than just about any game I've seen this year. All the character models have this glossy texture to them. It makes them look like they're made out of plasticine or, you know, one of the textures that they make models out of for a stop-motion animation film, you know, like like Coraline or The Nightmare Before Christmas. And then when you see the game in action and you see that all of the characters have this kind of jerky motion to them, it looks exactly like stop-motion. And don't get me wrong, Octopath Traveler is a very striking game, and when it works, it looks really great, but I even mentioned this back in our Octopath Traveler episode, how I thought the effect of the graphics was lessened in several places because there's a really aggressive blur filter applied in a lot of places in Octopath Traveler. That was what really lost this category for it for me. And when I look at a game like Pixel Junk Monsters 2, which knows what it's trying to be and doesn't get in its own way in order to be it, it's absolutely the best visual design for me on the Switch this year. And I'm very happy to give it to a game that deserves it. Top 3 Games of the Year My top 3 games of the year are Orkami, which is a huge beautiful adventure with gorgeous flowing soundtrack. Minute, a tiny condensed adventure with a neat little soundtrack. And Smash Brothers, a chaotic joy of a game with an amazing nostalgia driven soundtrack, which has a combined running time that's longer than time itself. Okay, so my top three Switch games of the year are Into the Breach, Celeste, and Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. I'm not going to talk much about them because I've already covered heaps of what I loved about them in previous segments, but yeah, they're my three. Here's Andrew with my top three. An early release in the year was Dragon Quest Builders, which is a port of a PlayStation 4 slash Vita game, which is deceptively excellent. I love Dragon Quest Builders. I would not have played Minecraft as much as I have if not for Dragon Quest Builders. What I really struggled with in Minecraft was I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. Dragon Quest Builders is heavily based on Minecraft, but it has a plot and it has characters in it. And it has characters who come to you, the builder, the the mythological character the Builder, who is prophesized to return to the world and rebuild it, they come to you and they ask you to build things, which is the impetus I need to actually want to build something. I don't know what the point of building anything in Minecraft is. I know what the point of building something in Dragon Quest Builders is because an NPC has asked for it, and I build the thing they've asked for. We move on to the next step in the game. That makes sense to me. I understand how that works. 
and it kept me engaged with Dragon Quest Builders for its entire duration. And Dragon Quest Builders 2 is supposed to be out in 2019. I'm very much looking forward to it because it looks like it's taking all the things I loved about Builders and just going more, 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 more on top of it. I couldn't be more excited for that, and Dragon Quest Builders was an easy choice for one of my top three. For my next game, I think this is going to be on everybody's list, but is Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. In the lead-up to this release, I wasn't that excited about it because they hadn't announced anything in it for Andrew. This was just a lot of multiplayer modes that we already knew were going to be in the game, so I wasn't that into it. And then in the last Direct of the year, they revealed the World of Light, which was exactly what I needed to see. It's a Hyrule Warriors-style adventure mode, but it's set in Smash Brothers, and it sends you out into this world map just filled with spirits. You get into these super customized fights against various enemies. You know, the floor might be on fire. Everybody might have wings. Everybody might have lasers. You never know what you're going to run into. And there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these battles. It has everything that I love to do to keep me involved in a game. It's got progression systems. It's got a checklist of things for me to do. It's got multiple endings, it's got a world to explore, it's got bosses to fight, it's got things to unlock. It was the single-player mode in Smash Brothers I never knew I wanted. I've played a ridiculous amount of past Smash Brothers games, but I haven't actually really loved any of them as far as their single-player content goes. But the World of Light was great, and the World of Light alone get Smash Brothers Ultimate on my top three of the year. And for my third game is a game that I've wanted on Switch since it came out, and that's Diablo 3 Eternal Collection. Diablo 3 on PC is already one of my favorite games of all time. It's already a game that I've sunk a ridiculous amount of time into. I would not have finished college without Diablo 3 which I frequently used as a study buddy. Do a quest in Diablo 3, write a paragraph. Do a quest in Diablo 3, solve a math problem. I'm not kidding when I say that I went through about two years of college doing this, and don't laugh, it's a system that worked. The Eternal Collection on Switch is a graphical downgrade, of course. That's par for the course for ports onto this platform. But it has all of the content introduced into Diablo 3, including the Rise of the Necromancer pack, which I had yet to experience, along with the base game and the Reaper of Souls expansion, and just dozens and dozens and dozens of smaller content updates. It's the complete package. As Ginny and I talked about in our Diablo 3 coverage episode, this is sort of the culmination of the Diablo 3 experience, where you had the PC release that was online requirement, and then it was ported to consoles, which you could play offline. Now it's on Switch, which you can play not only offline, you can also play it portably. And between seven different character classes, a decently long campaign that tells a good story but doesn't overstay its welcome, and the adventure mode, which offers the best kind of grinding, which is just the perfect way to fill time or to distract yourself or to just multitask while you're doing something else that you need to give yourself the slightest 
little distraction from, as I did when I was going through school. Diablo 3 Eternal Collection has been out for less than two months, but it's already one of my most played games on the platform. By the end of 2019, I fully expect it to be my most played game on the Switch. Of course, it's one of my top three of the year. Individual Game of the Year. My top game of the year has to go to Smash Brothers. I've been a huge fan since the N64 days, and I love that on top of being a wonderful and energetic fighting party game, it's a living, breathing encyclopedia of Nintendo, with a slavish attention to detail. So many moves come from a game somewhere, with some incredibly deep cuts, but this never gets in the way of the actual game mechanics itself. It has its own voice, its own logic, so if you don't pick up a reference, it's fine. Smash Bros. Ultimate is Smash Bros. at its absolute best yet. I'm just having a great time slowly working my way through World of Light. I'm sure I'll be playing it for a long time to come. So my winner, my my own Switch game of the year, is Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. I didn't think it would be this. I kind of secretly hate that I've, I've picked a game that's come out in the last month and, and that's the one I've done because I, I feel like there is a trend in the industry where the games that are released later in the year tend to do better just because they're fresher in the memory. There's a number of factors as to why this is my favourite game of the year and basically it boils down to it's a great competitive online fighter which I love and with World of Light I just can't think of another game that I've been this into. It's consumed my every waking thought and I just can't pull myself away from it to experience some of the other things, including the online multiplayer. So yeah, that's it. That's my game of the year. Uh, why not join our Discord channel and tell us yours? As you can probably guess by how much time I just spent gushing about it, my individual game of the year is Diablo 3 Eternal Collection. It's a must-own for the platform, and the must-own game of... 2018 on the Switch. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Switch Focus Podcast, or indeed all our episodes over 2018. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, it really helps us to get noticed. And you can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. Be sure to join the Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. Links are in the show notes. If you want to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. Details are on our website. Thanks in advance. If you want to follow the three regular panelists on Twitter, you can do so. I'm at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically. Also streaming at, also streaming at twitch.tv forward slash playcritically. And Ginny is at Ginny Woes. And you can also follow our composer Craig. He's at Craigity Craig, or you can follow his musical career at Windmills at Dawn.